Hey, babe. What's up? I have a pop quiz. How do you pronounce the capital of Kentucky? Is it Louisville, Louisville, or Louisville? People make a big deal out of this. You know, there's like, oh, it's not called Louisville. It's Louisville. And it's like, no, you can call it Louisville. You can call it Louisville. You know what? I'm going to stop you right here. You're failing this pop quiz. That's not the capital of Kentucky. What is? You really don't know this? Oh, right. It's Lexington. How dare you? Hi, we're Leah and Jeremy. We're the accident-prone travelers behind Practical Wanderlust. And we're here to dish out travel tips, travel tricks, useful trivia, useless trivia, mildly entertaining anecdotes, and everything else you need to avoid making all of our terrible, 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 terrible mistakes. And we make a lot of mistakes. This episode is all about Leah's hometown. Louisville! Louisville, K-Y. All right. I, felt, I thought I was going to do the fun intro word. Is that out of your system, Ella Fitzgerald? Yes. When people think of my hometown, Louisville, Kentucky, or you can also say Louisville, no big deal, they often think of the Derby, fried chicken, bourbon, baseball bats, college basketball. Feel free to jump in at any point here, honey. I think you covered them all. No, I didn't. Rude. I'm kidding. As a snooty Californian, I can say very proudly, I fucking love Louisville. What was it like growing up there? I mean, I grew up on a farm. We had a lot of animals around. It was really beautiful. We had border collies and horses. Um, There's lots of horseback riding. Wow, really stereotyping yourself right now. (laughs) As I've met more and more people from Louisville, I find it hilarious that you all have a, sorry, y'all have like a rehearsed monologue about the city. Like, our water is the purest in the country. We're yeah. the 16th largest city. Well, and then we you'll rattle off all a bunch of famous people from there. Yeah, like Muhammad Ali, Bryson Tiller, Hunter S. Thompson, Diane Stoyer. Stop. I didn't even say Jennifer Lawrence yet. Oh my God. And Nicole Scherzinger from the Pussycat Dolls. Come on now. Shoot the manual. <laughs> it should be known up front that there are two very different stories of Louisville. That's true. Louisville is very much a split or technically speaking, geographically segregated city. There are a lot of different facets to my hometown and they're often in direct opposition with one another. And in this episode, we're going to look at those different sides, attempt to examine where they came from and see how those stories live on today. We're going to go deep into some pretty complex history and hopefully distill it down. Was that a bourbon pun? Yes, it was. Will you put a cork in it? You know what? Mine was better and I have proof. You're really barreling through this episode so far. Oh my God. We just used up all of our all of our bourbon puns and it's only the first two minutes. All right. Let's turn the clock back and see how Louisville has left its mark on the world. It's maker's mark. I set you up for that. All right. Let's start with the native history around Louisville and a land acknowledgement. Native American history in the Louisville area stretches back over 11,000 years, and archaeological finds in the many caves surrounding Louisville imply that many different indigenous communities called this area home. However, due to the European colonizers straight up decimating Native people, we're not really sure which tribes lived where. We do know that the general Kentucky area had Shawnee, Cherokee, Chickasaw, Musapalea, and Yuchi tribes. And in the 1800s, those tribes were all forced to cede their lands and relocate, mostly to the west of the Mississippi River. You'll see names from a lot of those indigenous communities around town, um, plus a few others that, like, I'm not really sure why. Like, we have a Shawnee High School and we have a Cherokee Park, but then we also have an Iroquois High School and an Iroquois Park, and apparently they didn't actually live here, so I don't know, I guess an attempt was made. Actually, I looked this up. Turns out the Iroquois tribe helped European colonizers take over the Ohio River Valley where Louisville is located. Oh, well, that, that's fun. That explains that then, I guess. So bringing us up to the founding of the country and of the city, uh, during the Revolutionary War, Lieutenant Colonel George Rogers Clark, hey. remember that name, Clark, and a group of settlers settled on the now submerged island near the Falls of the Ohio in order to organize attacks on the Brits in the West. Legitimately did not realize there was an island sunk into the Ohio River. That's pretty cool. We're all learning here. The settlers built a town across from the river and named it after King Louis... That's just some Roman numerals on our script there that I can't read. The 16th. Thank you. Because he was all about our revolution. Yeah, like Marquis de Lafayette talked about in Hamilton. How many Hamilton references are there going to be in this episode? About as many as your Donner Party references in all of our California episodes. All right, touche. French. Approves. Nice. Oh my God. It was also around this time that Louisville became the origin of one of its greatest contributions to America. Ah, Jennifer Lawrence. Bourbon. So close. And speaking of bourbon. Which incidentally you're currently sipping. Yes. Shout out to Rabbit Hole. 
Considering how much we know about the science industry and taste of bourbon, there's a lot that we don't know about its origins. I mean, we know that there was like a bunch of corn lying around and some farmers were like, hey, y'all, let's make some booze out of this. But the exact genius who came up with Asian bourbon in charred oak casks is unknown, although there are some rumors. Regardless, props to that dude. Some people think that it was a Baptist minister and distiller named Elijah Craig. Famous for Elijah Craig brand bourbon. While others credit Jacob Spears from Bourbon County. Famous for the mistreatment of his daughter, Brittany. (laughs) No, that's not who that is. Either way, hashtag free Brittany, man. Free Brittany. Speaking of Bourbon County, there's even a lively and ongoing debate on where the name bourbon comes from. I've never heard anybody debating that in my entire life. You are on different subreddits than I am. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm not on Reddit. And I say that proudly. I am so offended. Most people think it's from Bourbon County, Kentucky. However, some history aficionados and historians believe the name evolved in New Orleans and gets its name from the city's Bourbon Street. I thought Bourbon Street was named that because people drink whiskey there. No, dude. Why would a street in Louisiana name itself after a spirit from Kentucky? I don't know. Patriotism? Okay. Actually, quick side quest. Is this about Hamilton? No. Okay. (laughs) A pair of brothers from France thought the Kentuckians' whiskey and charred barrels would sell better to New Orleans residents since it tasted a little more like French cognac. Oh, cognac. (laughs) People started asking for that whiskey from Bourbon Street and later bourbon whiskey. Mm. No matter what story you believe, Mm. it was called bourbon whiskey until 1840 when it was just officially named bourbon. I think it came from Kentucky. Yeah, well. And I'm a credited Kentuckian, so it must be true. All right, whatever. While its origins may be shrouded in myth, we do know that in 1783, Evan Williams opened the first commercial distillery in Kentucky in Louisville. Hey! Whiskey distilleries and innovations soon started popping up all over Kentucky after the Whiskey Rebellion since Kentucky distillers were not subject to federal laws at the time. Hang on, what's the Whiskey Rebellion? That sounds awesome. Okay, this is another side quest. I'm really excited about this one. All right, whiskey distillers and farmers organized an uprising in Pennsylvania in response to a tax on domestic spirits proposed by the A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R Hamilton. George Washington led a militia to disperse the rebellion, the first real test of the new government's ability to enforce federal law. So, in Hamilton, in cabinet battle number one, when Thomas Jefferson says, imagine what's going to happen when they try to tax our whiskey. This. This is what happens. So I assume that Hamilton 2 is going to be about Louisville, the sequel. Hamilton 2, Electric Boogaloo. (laughs) Too close. Too soon. Too soon. Anyway, included in this new batch of whiskeys was the discovery of Sour Mash by Dr. James C. Crow and what is now our favorite bourbon, Woodford Reserve. I do play favorites. I'm sorry. Yeah. By the early 1800s, everyone seemed to be making bourbon with approximately 2,000 distilleries in Kentucky alone. And the people who aren't in Kentucky that are still making bourbon, why? Can you guys just stop? Can Can you just not? It's just embarrassing. This led to an interesting fact, actually. That year... There were more distilleries and horses in Kentucky than there were people in the United States. That doesn't actually sound true to me. Aren't, aren't horses nomadic? What are you talking about? No, they're not. Okay, are they carnivorous? What are you... T- <laughs> what? How many eggs do they lay in a year? Jeremy, do you, like, not know what a horse is? Of, of course I know what a horse is. I've seen several horses at various horse locales. All right. Weirdo, we're moving on. In the next few years, Louisville was kind of vibing. Hey. President Jefferson commissioned Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, remember we told you all to remember that name, to explore the West, and they actually met in Louisville. Uh, they had a nice brunch at uh, what is now my favorite restaurant. I'm just kidding. I made that up. Anyway, they returned three years later when their famous trip was complete. Also, William Clark was Louisville's founder's brother. Oh, that's fun. Okay, and he's buried, in, he's buried in a cemetery there. Anyway, sorry. Go on. Okay. Americans love to talk about Lewis and Clark, but like... Native Americans have been doing that shit for thousands of years before them. So maybe just politely ask instead of, you know, murdering them. What are they supposed to do? Just be like, hey, y'all, is there the rest of the country for us to go and take over? They're not going to tell you that. (laughs) Anyway, Louisville was getting a frontier town reputation, but they kind of wanted to like pivot and become more metropolitan. So they started a theater, which is still a big part of Louisville today. More about that later. And they welcomed the first New Orleans steamboat. And with that, they built a canal and became a bona fide shipping town. What did they send through? Corn, tobacco, bourbon? Yes. Awesome. And humans. Oh. Louisville was one of the largest trading places of enslaved people, with Kentucky trafficking up to 4,000 enslaved men, women, and children each year to the plantations in the South by the 1850s. I'm so disappointed, Kentucky. Slave pens were set up in the markets of Louisville where people were kept chained together to prevent them from running away. Today, the only evidence of this place is 
is a simple historic marker on one of the city's main streets. It really, it's weird. Like there's, they don't talk about it in Louisville. Like you'll go to the South and you'll go to New Orleans or Savannah and there's a lot more evidence. It's really, it's really disappointing how little it's talked about in Louisville. And these were places of indescribable cruelty and pain. The expression sold down the river originated in Louisville as a lament of Eastern enslaved people being split apart from their families and sales at Louisville. Louisville was also an important stop, though, on the Underground Railroad, because once you cross the Ohio River, that was kind of your last hurdle before you reached the northern states in Indiana. And speaking of north versus south, Louisville was sort of a gray area during the Civil War. No, honey, the Confederates were gray. Just, you know... Louisville was geographically and politically caught between the two sides, though. While Kentucky was technically a neutral state... Louisville was considered a Union town. And I should note, still is. Still is. But Confederates did hang out there, and you could hear their songs being sung at certain taverns. Louisville also had uniform manufacturers for both the Union and the Confederacy, and was used as a military headquarters and depot for both. It's like that always sunny bit where Max said he's playing both sides, so he always comes out on top. Again, I say, nobody gets your references. Everyone loves Always Sunny. Well, I've never seen it, so... Haven't you seen Dayman? Well, yeah, but that's just because I'm cultured. Surprisingly, despite the rivaling factions being in the same city, Louisville largely avoided destruction and conflict. The way that we learned it growing up in history class was that people on, like, brothers in the same family were split in Kentucky on either side of the Civil War. And they kind of also made it sound like we were neutral like Switzerland, but maybe that's just because I grew up in Louisville and we don't like to talk about the rest of Kentucky. Yeah, they like to kind of gloss over. Yeah. Many citizens of Louisville, though, still harbored Confederate sentiments after the end of the war. What? Americans clinging to Confederate sentiments? Mm-hmm, refusing crazy. to tear down the flag? Erecting monuments? Mm-hmm. In this country? In 2020? Crazy. Weird. But possibly for that, Louisville was the first city to enact the secret ballot in the U.S. Oh, fun. So they can hide their fucked up politics in secret. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that nobody will ever come public with their hateful beliefs. Of course not. After the war, Louisville upped their game in terms of non-fucked up industry. It continued shipping bourbon and tobacco, but there were some new attractions. Yes. So during the war, J. Frederick Heilrich. Hillerich. Yes. So during the war, J. Frederick Hillerich started a wood shop in the city. Oh, fun. He was a German immigrant whose son, Bud, played amateur baseball. Frederick himself did not care for baseball, but he was a supportive father. Well, I do stand supportive fathers. Together, they made a new bat from mm-hmm. white ash for local pro Pete Browning after they saw Browning break a bat in a game. When Browning first used the bat in the game, he delivered three hits, and he continued to use that bat. It later gained the iconic nickname, the Louisville Slugger. Oh, shit. And then Louisville Slugger became a pro baseball team, right? No. Oh, that's a disappointment. Explains a lot, actually. Louisville has also been a major player in healthcare historically. It seems to have started in the early 1900s with the construction of Waverly Hills Sanatorium, a place to treat tuberculosis patients. Man, sanatoriums always sound like they're going to be haunted, but then they're like, never are. Uh, Waverly Hills is haunted as fuck. Yes! It's actually said to be one of the most haunted places on earth. Ah, fuck yeah. You hear that Winchester Mystery House? Eat it. Can you calm down? Sorry. One of the more infamous traits of the building is the now-called Death Tunnel. Ooh. A 500-foot-long cement tunnel that leads down the hill from the main building. That is very American Horror Story. Very. Ostensibly, the tunnel was created to move supplies. However, when TB deaths skyrocketed, seeing bodies was bad for morale. So the bodies of the dead were transported down the tunnel and stayed there until they could either be burned in mass or transferred elsewhere. Oh my God. The tunnel is also said to be an emergency bomb shelter during World War II, but luckily no one had to resort to that. Ew, I bet it smelled really bad. Yeah, ugh. Let's talk about the Belle of Louisville. Oh, you're sweet. What? Oh, No, that's not a nickname for you. Wow. What? The Belle of Louisville is the world's oldest Mississippi River-style steamboat still in operation and was built in 1914. The boat has traveled from Montana all the way to the Gulf, which makes it the most seasoned steamboat ever. Oh, and it's still running. You can actually take tours of the Ohio River or a romantic candlelight dinner with your wife that you don't think of as the Belle of Louisville underneath the bridge on the Ohio River. Wow. Real question, though. Why isn't there a drag queen called Belle of Louisville? Like, Our Louisville-based listeners, please ma- yes. please have it happen. Th- that's definitely a, a big opportunity. So it sounds like those were kind of like the glory days for Louisville. Uh, yes. The days after slavery, but before civil rights, where a bunch of dead people were shoved down a tunnel. That's the sweet spot right there. Oof. Okay. Well, maybe we take that back. Those 
Those were days. Much better. But soon came Prohibition. Prohibition took a hit on Louisville's bourbon industry because only distilleries that could obtain permission to make whiskey for medicinal purposes were allowed to stay open. That caused the hospitality industry to take some serious damage. But despite this, or maybe because of this, bourbon's popularity continued to grow. In the 60s, Congress designated bourbon as America's native spirit, a distinctive product of the United States. It is the only spirit to be designated as a distinctive product of the U.S., and it even has its own month, September. And again, I say, I don't know why it's not designated Louisville or Kentucky, um, and everybody else should just stop making it. You don't count. (laughs) We'll get to that in a bit. But why is it September? Why not May? That's Derby Month. I don't know. Ask Congress. Dear Nancy Pelosi. All right, moving on. We've about gotten up to the 60s, which means it's time for civil rights. Although I did notice that you skipped over the uh, history of the Louisville train uh, system, which had its heyday in the 20s. And I have strong opinions about they need to bring that train system back. (laughs) Save it for when you run for city council. Okay, I will. Anyway, civil rights. Oh, boy. There is a lot here. Let's just say the hard thing right up front. And we've said it earlier, Louisville is still geographically segregated. We're going to talk about it a lot later in this episode, too. Um, But a lot of it does have to do with the legacy of the civil rights movement. While the city technically banned segregation, the systems that helped keep segregation in place are very much still alive today. But during the civil rights movement, Louisville did have a moment. What we've shown so far this episode is that Louisville has, up to this point in history, been an accessory, if not totally complicit, to crimes against people. And this was really its chance to turn that around and side with the oppressed and not the oppressor. And it dropped the ball. It did. And it's still rectifying with that today. We're going to dive more into this in Act 3 of our episode. But for now, let's take a look at some of the things that Louisville is known for today. We get a lot of questions from our followers. What's your favorite country? When should I visit California? What are you doing in my house? But one question we get more than anything else is, how were you able to quit your job and go travel? Well, now you can learn the answer. Practical Wanderlust is releasing its very first book, How to Quit Your Job and Travel. Many of us dream of quitting our jobs, hopping on a plane, and escaping our daily realities to frolic around on, near, or around a beach for a while or even longer. But for most of us, it's just a dream. Until now. We've created a practical step-by-step guide to one of the most exciting exhilarating, and terrifying things you'll ever do. Plus, all the things nobody tells you and plenty of stories from our disastrous year-long honeymoon. You mean like the time we had to fly home because your grandpa faked his own death? Or are you talking about when we got to rescue off a waterfall? Or all the ice cream that we ate? Or the rooster that tried to kill us in a van? your fault. You should have listened to the pants. Okay, I don't want to hear about Machu Picchu ever again. Pre-order yours today on practicalwanderlust.com or click the link in the show notes. As an added bonus, we'll meet the first 100 customers at the airport. No, we can't afford that. Okay, let me take that again. As an added bonus, the first 100 customers get to borrow Mulan. I have separation anxiety. Uh, you can't fine, do that. Fine. Leah will send the first 100 customers a lock of her hair. Fine, but I think I'm going to be bald. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. Next, I want to talk about the thing anyone who has ever heard of Kentucky has heard of. The Derby. Oh, yeah. The Derby. <laughs> Why do you say it like that? No, Nothing. I meant KFC, but now I feel like a dick. Oh, my God. Okay, first of all, KFC really, like, isn't a thing in Louisville any more than it is elsewhere. We don't, like, claim KFC. Like, Colonel Sanders is buried in Cayfield Cemetery, but that's it. I've never been more disappointed in Kentucky. Okay, the Derby. Okay, listen. The Kentucky Derby is more than just the most exciting two minutes in sports. Am I right, ladies? Like, sure, it culminates in the race, but the weeks leading up to it are the Derby Festival, which is arguably more fun. It's like this full-blown celebration that's, I think, more important than Christmas or Halloween in Louisville. For two weeks at the end of April, the entire city is suddenly covered in bright colors and oversized hats and these, like, huge life-size painted horse statues and, like, weird horse racing-themed cocktail parties and food. And they even close schools. Like, the Friday before, Derby's always on a Saturday, and the Friday before is called Oaks Day. And we all get off of school, which I don't know why, because, like... You can't legally go to the Derby and gamble until you're over 18, but... It's it's 1,000% for the teachers. Oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. As a fellow teacher, I appreciate that. I mean, it was really fun getting left home alone, like, the Friday before Derby so that, you know, the whole, like, adult population could go gamble. That's the beginning of a horror film. (laughs) That's so true. Okay. The Derby Festival kicks off with Thunder Over Louisville, which is the largest fireworks display in North America. I really want Tyler to add ACDC, but copyright. Do you remember when we went and the entire like soundtrack for the 30 minutes of fireworks was just songs that had to do with thunder? Yes. <laughs> it was 
so excellent. And then there's the food. Oh, I remember the food fondly. The Derby is when everyone visits Louisville, so naturally restaurants put their best foot forward and offer all sorts of Kentucky classic dishes and drinks. Speaking of, get ready to drink a lot of bourbon if you ever go. Yes. The mint julep is the official drink of the Derby, and the Old Fashioned is the official drink of Louisville. And I will take two of each, please. You know what? You're on your third bourbon. You need to chill. What are you, my wife? It's not like the city becomes like a big two-week-long party like in New Orleans, but it's more like there's just a lot of events like spread out across the two weeks after Thunder of Louisville. Like what? Okay, so this is actually really cute. There's a yoga event called Namaste. No, there's not. Yes, I swear to God, I'm not making this up. There's also a duck race called the Kentucky Derby. You you just made that up. No, I'm serious. Louisville loves good wordplay. There's also party throughout the whole city. Oh, and then there's the Kentucky Steamboat Race with the Belle of Louisville. And she she like races along the river with these other hundred year old, like the Belle of Cincinnati or whatever it's called. And like every year it's like this really long drawn out race because they're very <laughs> slow. And it's like, who's going to win this year? Is it going to be the hundred year old Belle of Louisville or the hundred and five year old Cincinnati, whatever? Money's on Belle of Louisville. She's traveled further than any steamboat in history. You can't beat the bell. I know. Also, she's way prettier there. I saw that. (laughs) There's also parties throughout the whole city um, leading up to the Derby, and they're like very swanky affairs. Can you guess who hosts the biggest celebrity party? Jennifer Lawrence. Good guess. Um, But no, I don't actually think she's cool enough to have her own house in Louisville. Mayor Fisher. No. Harlan Sanders' ghost. Maybe. Who? It's the Doublemint Twins. You know, like... How would I have ever guessed that (laughs) considering it's not 1994? No, it's the biggest party in Louisville of the entire year. All the biggest celebrities come. It's called the Barnstable Brown Gala, and it's a huge deal. You can stand outside of their house and, like, line up on a red carpet and, like, spot B-list and A-list sometimes celebrities. Uh, The Queen went one year, actually. Beyonce was there? No. Queen Elizabeth II. Her. Wow. Okay. But aren't people today kind of, like, over horse racing? Oh, I mean, it's not exactly like the 1900s era excitement. But the Derby is such a long-standing tradition that like at least everybody in Louisville gets into it. They have the seats in the stands for like the privileged rich people with the fancy hats. But then there's the infield, which is where like regular plebes and schmucks like us go because you're kind of like standing in mud and it's like really sunny or really rainy and it's really crammed in with drunk people and it's okay. I'm going to be honest. Personally, I have never been to the Derby. How, okay, how can you talk about it then? You've never been, like ever? Locals never go to the Derby. That's for celebrities. Locals go to Thurby, which is the Thursday before the Derby. Get it? Yeah, uh we love it. And then the Oaks, which is the Friday before the Derby. And then you stay home and like go to cocktail parties or whatever, or like backyard parties and watch the Derby at home and like bet with all your friends. You know, Parking does sound easier that way. Yeah. Also, they have their their own um, drinks and cocktails themed for Thursday and Friday before the Derby. But you can't go if you're not a local. You can, but you shouldn't. Don't. <laughs> Stay home. So it does sound like a lot of fun, and it sounds like people get really into it. But the one thing that I want to ask about is a question that we hear a lot when we talk about the Derby, and that's animal abuse. Yes. You really shouldn't talk about the Derby without talking about animal abuse. I will say, growing up in Louisville, we're very conditioned to like it, right? To support it. Um, but as an adult, you know, I have done digging about, is it ethical to, to race horses? Is it even ethical to keep horses as pets? I grew up with two horses. And honestly, it's one of those things where it kind of comes down to the individual horse owners and the jockeys and how well they treat the horses, because sometimes it really is a close relationship and they're treating the horses well because they know that the horses will perform better if they're treated well. And sometimes it's just about the money and they could care less. And And it comes down to the industry itself and having regulations that are in place to protect the horses who obviously can't advocate for themselves. So much like, you know, we have like regulations on baseball in terms of like you can't dope up your players and like you you don't just shoot them when their legs break and so on and so forth. We need to have more regulations like that in place when it comes to horse racing. So I am very much all in support of having those regulations, making sure that it is safe. It's not 100% there today, but as a horse lover, somebody who grew up around horses and loved it. Um, that's where I would like to see it get to. And I definitely am a, I, I want to encourage everybody who wants to enjoy the Derby to be a vocal participant in having those changes put into place. So it is safe for the horses and for us all to enjoy. And I mean, the, the proof is in the, is in the results. I mean, the, the owners and the jockeys who consistently win and have these winning horses, they are the ones who are held up as being like, they really treat their horses well, because like, mm-hmm. 
horses are very intelligent and they're not going to fucking run two minutes like the fastest, like as fast as secretariat if you're treating it like shit, you know? So yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels too with like dog sledding, like dog sledding is only ethical if the company that you're going with treats their dogs well. And if they do treat their dogs well, those dogs are just thrilled to get out and run and like go like run across like the snowy forest or whatever. Horses love running. They love being free and they love having a wide amount of land to gallop across, right? It's a shame that they are also kept as pets and kept in captivity when they used to be able to roam free. But when you go like driving through bourbon country, like you can, you'll pass by these big fields with horses, like hanging out and having a blast. And most horses retire when they're around like two or three after racing for a few years and they get to just enjoy these fields and um, have a bunch of kids. That's kind of what, if you're, if you're a good racehorse, that's what you end up doing. Um, But so it's, it's, it really just depends. It's a complicated thing to talk about. I, I don't have like an easy answer there. Well, I do hope that like more regulation comes because it is a big question, especially every like May you hear a lot about like, don't support the Derby because of this. And it's not, it's not a black or white issue. Like you said, we've never been to the Derby. You exposed us, but we did go to the Derby festival one year and I am pretty sure I drank Mulan's weight in bourbon. Okay, honey, nobody actually knows how much our dog weighs. Okay. Let me take that again. And this sentence will sound like a human speaking. I think I drank Mulan's weight in bourbon. You know, my dog Mulan, who is 20 pounds. This is why I don't give you a script. I'm just kidding. You write the scripts. But that's much better. I always say if you don't like bourbon going into Louisville, you'll definitely like it when you leave. You always say that? All the time. That's like your thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would you like to talk about our wonderful bourbon drinks now? I would love to talk about our wonderful bourbon drinks now. As we've said, the official cocktail of Louisville is the old-fashioned. This bittersweet king of cocktails is made with bourbon, sugar, or simple syrup, bitters, and an orange peel. I th- definitely thought that there was a cherry in it. I'm very I usually, disappointed to find some, out that there's not. Some bars do add a cherry, but okay. That's this, my favorite part this of is the kind drink of like is a, eating your cherry. This is kind of one of those marriage secrets. Sometimes I ask for a cherry in there because I always give you my cherry. Are you serious? So sometimes I ruin my cocktail so oh, that you could have a cherry. First of all, wow, it definitely makes it better. And they don't even put it in the cocktail. It's like on a little stick. And second of all, oh, that's cute. Yeah. How many other secrets are you keeping for me? You'll find out one day. <laughs> After I Why die, is that so creepy? Don't go in my attic. <laughs> so like I just walk up to a bar and I order an old fashioned and then I just realize our whole life was a lie. <laughs> You've been lying to me our entire marriage. Honey, don't be ridiculous. You would never order. That's true. We also mentioned the mint julep. It's the perfect cocktail to sip in the very hot sun, um, possibly surrounded by other drunken revelers while you're cheering on a horse that you just picked out randomly based on its name. Best um, way to win. While wearing a ridiculously fancy hat. It's made with bourbon, simple syrup, muddled mint, and shaved ice. Um, It's basically like a boozy mint snow cone. And honestly, I don't think it's that good. (laughs) But it's very popular. It does grow on you after like the third one that you have. Just like mint? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> mint juleps are like whatever they're great for the derby but they're really good because it's so cold in the sun but my personal hot, you mean it's hot in the sun the sun is hot no i mean the drink is cold and then you're in the sun i thought you just were confused about what the sun was sorry I'm, go on i am aware what the sun is <laughs> i am a human person. <laughs> I'm a human man <laughs> uh, but my personal favorite hot weather cocktail margarita that's racist right sorry that's number two um, no, it's a Kentucky Mule. It's the perfect blend of bourbon, lime, and ginger beer. Ah, uh, yes. It's so fancy that it gets its very own copper mug. I mean, honey, all mules get the copper mug. Oh, my God. It has to do with the thermodynamics and how... Wow, where did you get a fedora? Actually, actually... Oh, my God. That's not even to mention all the distilleries, where you can taste the bourbon straight out of the barrel and become a total douche about your bourbon like Jeremy. Like you don't have a favorite bourbon. No, I definitely do. Um, it's Woodford Double Oaked for sipping. Not regular Woodford. It has to be the Double Oaked because they put it back in the barrel and it gets sweeter. Uh, Maker's Mark is my cooking bourbon. Uh, yes, except Double Oaked for me is too sweet. So that's a dessert bourbon. I like Blanton's with food. That's true. That's accurate. I will also say that Rabbit Hole Distillery sent us a bottle recently and we've been sipping on that one and it's real good. And it's also their distillery is based in the heart of Louisville, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. Also, thank you, Rabbit Hole. Thanks, Rabbit Hole. I see your point, though, about dessert bourbon, and I'd like to raise you to the fact that I actually prefer to only eat bourbon as a dessert in the form of uh, bourbon balls. That's true. Also, a good point is that bourbon plays a big role in food. Oh, yes. Yes, it very much does. And Kentucky in general has an interesting melting pot of cultures and history, so naturally the food reflects that. Mm, Naturally. (laughs) 
Native American crops blended with colonial staples and those mixed with food that the enslaved people brought from Africa. Oh, you mean like the story of Southern cuisine with a little sprinkling in of Native American and Midwest influences. Like beer cheese? Like beer cheese. Mm -hmm. So what are some classic dishes in Louisville? I mean, obviously beer cheese. Um, There is actually a beer cheese trail in Kentucky. Still haven't gone and I'm very disappointed. It's not like a Louisville thing, but it's a Kentucky thing. So I guess I'll claim it. There, we also do have the most quintessential Louisville dish is, it's called a hot brown. Um, describing it, it doesn't sound as good as it actually is, but it's basically like this baked open-faced sandwich with turkey, tomato, bacon, and like the, the sauce called moray sauce, which is kind of cheesy. And I know it doesn't sound good when I describe it, but- It's delicious. I, I swear it's really good and really fatty and like filling and rich. You can find it all over Louisville, but it was invented at the Brown Hotel and that's where you can get the real deal. Yeah, and there's also like different spins on it. Like we had a Nashville hot chicken version of it once. It was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't realize this, but Louisville invented pulled pork. Yeah. You're welcome, Earth. Another one that you're famous for is Burgoo. Yeah, I was hoping you wouldn't actually mention that one because... Um, Gross. Yeah. Burgoo is a Southern stew that for some reason is more popular in Kentucky than anywhere else. A few places in Kentucky do claim to be the Burgoo capital of the world. And as far as we know, nobody else has stepped up to the plate to dispute that claim because why would they? Burgoo's got a weird name to match its historically weird ingredients. It's supposed to be made with pretty much whatever meat you've got lying around. Yeah. My mom, who also grew up in Louisville and is a Louisville expert, just like me, says that it used to be made with squirrels, um, and I thought she was pulling my leg, but I did Wikipedia it, and apparently that is true. So So. that settles it. What's going to settle my stomach? Beer cheese. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) You just cover it with beer cheese, and it's a lot more palatable. (laughs) It's not like a... It's not like an exfoliating, like... I know we didn't describe what beer cheese is, by the way. The title, well, the title is, is the, are the ingredients. Yeah. So <laughs> it's it's fine. It's pretty good. Pimento cheese is another one. Anyway, let's talk about dessert. Yes. My favorite Louisville food item, the Derby pie. Excuse you. Trademark. Yes. So this is a little weird food history. The Kearns family developed the Derby pie in the... Trademark. Fi- in the 50s and still the only people who can make it. How, you might ask? By trademarking the name. Yes, that's why every time somebody types or says Derby Pie, they also have to add a little TM just so you know that you're talking about capitalization Derby Pie trademark. There Big have been, money moves. <laughs> what it is is imagine a pecan pie with chocolate chips. That's what we're working with here. Except for the current recipe TM uses walnuts. There have been plenty of copycats, but they have to do like playful name things to get out of a lawsuit like horse race pie choco nut pie legally we can't call this derby pie you can't do that one no you get sued they are they are very much protective of their names um we also so we were a little bit shady on our blog and we like had this whole bit kind of like poking fun at how the current company sues everybody that makes chocolate horse racing themed pecan pie and they sent us derby pies and they were like it's not that we are offended or anything. We just want you to know that ours are better. Um, and I'm not going to lie. They were really freaking good. Like they the were. OG like Derby Pie TM that you can get from the grocery store. Very, very delicious. Along with those Derby Pies, they also sent us a calendar. And I think that's really what like really like sealed the deal for me. Basically, they have these calendars and everybody takes their Derby Pie with them on vacation and then takes yeah. it. I'm not joking. They hold up the picture of the Derby Pie or like they hold up the box, right? Of the, the Derby box. Pie. Yeah. And just like hold it up in front of the Eiffel Tower or like the Grand Canyon or whatever with like a little family picture with like your derby pies like along for the ride. And it is my goal in life to be in this calendar. I just want to like, I just want somebody to have a derby pie in like in front of Big Ben and Paul Hollywood walks past and they like give him a slice and he's like, good crumb. It does have a good crumb. It's a very delicious pie. (laughs) Um, so just like the Kearns, there's like an interesting like history in a lot of established restaurants there. And some of the restaurants sort of get tied in with the old hotels. Oh, you're talking like Jack Fry's. Yes. This is like a mob movie plot. All right. Let's set the scene. Yeah. Jack Fry and his wife Flossie opened the joint in 1933. He was a rootin', tootin', gambling, rambling type, betting on the ponies and the fights. It was a classy joint, see? All the biggest showmen showed. Trouble is, Jack was a little dodgy. He and old Flossie were bootlegging and running after him to give a free lunch to those in need. Okay, so what happened? Did the FBI seize the joint? What the fuck was that voice? <laughs> I was doing a mobster voice. Honey, leave the characters to me, please. 
Okay. While in 1970... See, I can't even do it anymore. It's ruined. To be fair, you were kind of starting to slip into Australian accent. (laughs) They always end up Australian. (laughs) Yours always end up Brooklyn. (laughs) Brooklyn. (laughs) Anyways, in 1972, they closed up shop. It wasn't that dramatic as far as I know. Womp womp. But eventually it was reopened in the 1980s under new ownership and y'all is bomb. Yeah, their shrimp and grits are... Ah. He just did a chef's kiss. I don't know if that translates. So we briefly mentioned the Brown Hotel, but it's actually a really big deal in Louisville. Yeah, I mean, you could say that about like me too. Wow. <laughs> it's just it's so self-centered. <laughs> it was definitely just a joke. Nobody knows who I am. Go on. So when it opened, the Brown Hotel was the pure essence of the Roaring Twenties. Lavish dance parties, art deco design, the whole nine. It drew crowds on like a nightly basis. I'm getting great Gatsby vibes here. I feel like that's where we're going with this. But I am wondering, how did it do in the Depression? Great Gatsby actually is going to come by a little later. Hmm, I was hoping. Um, So they actually did surprisingly okay. The hotel defaulted on its loan, but was able to stay open since employees agreed to work temporarily without pay. Air quotes on agreed. I'm also really enjoying the visual of you just like rummaging through like archival records in the back of the Brown Hotel to like put this script together. Thanks to Sarah, our researcher. Yes. Thank you, Sarah. Um... It's also the place that celebrities always stay. So like the Duke of Windsor, Harry Ooh. Truman, Liz Taylor, Muhammad Ali, who's a Louisville native, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter, um, the Bushes, and the man, Barack Obama. And a lot of the movie Elizabethtown takes place there. Yeah, it does. Much more importantly, even though it really makes no sense why somebody would have a hotel in downtown Louisville if they were driving to Elizabethtown for a funeral every single day. But, you know, Honey, whatever. You calm down. All right. Cameron Crowe is not a listener. It just pisses me off because, like, it's I called Elizabethtown. It I know it, it does. But it was mostly filmed oh in Louisville. God. And, like, I, I did audition it. for an extra role. And also I camped out to see Orlando Bloom eating mm. at Highland Coffee, which he said was lovely. How was, um, how was Kirsten Dunst's accent? Them. How was her Louisville accent? Oh, my God. It was really, really bad. It was <laughs> almost as bad as... Owen Wilson doing a Louisville accent in um, what's the movie? The Life Aquatic. Thank you. <laughs> he was, it was just general Completely Southern. terrible. Do I have an accent? Does it sound like I have an accent? Because that's a Louisville accent. There you go. You do kind of have a Valley Girl accent. Okay. That's fair. Me 10 years ago, maybe, minus the Californication aspect. That's anyway. copywritten by Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> we can't use that phrase. I'm just Can we just talk about the Seelbach Hotel? <laughs> yes. So uh, the Seelbach Hotel. A wonder and modern innovation. Are we doing like a mobster voice again? Was that Disney in the 60s? What what was that? I don't know. That was just generic radio voice. All right. Tell me about the Seelbach. Is it really a modern innovation? Not anymore. In 1905, it was. There's a whole system of underground tunnels that were used to pump water so that they could actually steam power the hotel. Ah, tunnel, eh? Sounds like they, they used to use, use it to them for bodies. Oh, we were thinking totally different things. <laughs> I was going back to Waverly Hills there. <laughs> <laughs> no, the Seelbach seal was a prohibition hotspot. And if the cops tried to break in, the patrons would just duck into those tunnels and scatter. Ah, yeah. Take that, fuzz. So for the fans of literature, you might have heard of Louisville as the home of fictional character Daisy Buchanan yes, from finally. Great Gatsby. Yes! But actually, the Great Gatsby connection is much more important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. F. Scott Fitzgerald was a frequent fixture at the Seelbach, and he met a man at the bar named George Remus. Mm-hmm. See, Remus was a former attorney from Cincinnati and was better known as the King of Bootleggings mm-hmm. when he met Fitzgerald. Within three years, he had raked in what would now be $900 million in today's currency. So he's Donald Trump. Uh, kind Wait, no. No, because that sounds like a legitimate business. So <laughs> never mind. <laughs> Oof. Uh, so Remus then became the inspiration for the title character of the novel, Jay Gatsby. Oh. Yeah. Like the fictional Gatsby, Remus would throw these ridiculously lavish parties, sometimes hiding jewelry or keys to new cars under each guest's dinner plate, which is like Oprah moves, mm. all the while hiding in his library. Fitzgerald was fascinated by a lot. Wait, so he didn't even like watch people be like, oh my God, a new car. No. Have you read Great Gatsby? Yes. Wow. Definitely in high school. <laughs> so. Yeah. He just hung out in the library. And Fitzgerald was just fascinated by these larger-than-life stories, not unlike Nick Carraway from the novel. Mm. So for added fun, the Seelbach Hotel is woven into the novel as the site of Tom and Daisy Buchanan's wedding. Which is really interesting because I heard that he got kicked out of it because he kept getting drunk there while he was writing it. That's the story that they tell in Louisville about uh, good old F. Scott Fitzgerald, is that he was just like drunk sitting in the Seelbach writing movies or whatever, books, I guess, technically at the time. And he got kicked out and he's kind of a schlub because... I think this is why, but Louisville really wasn't the setting of the whole book, and I think we hold a grudge. 
Well, clearly Long Island was classier. That's incredibly rude. I also want to point out that you said F. Scott Fitzgerald, Nuh-uh. which is funny because we used to name our fig trees like different Fitzgeralds. Oh, that's why. Like Ella Fitzgerald. Ella Fitzgerald. Or F. Scott's Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald, yeah. yes, yes. Oh, California thing. <laughs> I love Kentucky, but we just don't have named fig trees here in Louisville. It should also be said that the hotel is super haunted. I was hoping. Yeah. Specifically by a ghost called the Lady in Blue. Ooh. In the 30s, uh, she had agreed to meet her husband at the Sealbach to talk about their relationship after a recent separation. Oh, However, that's a power move. Her husband never showed. <gasps> he was killed in a tragic car accident on his way to the hotel. Oh, no. Patricia Wilson, the name of the ghost, supposedly jumped to her death in the elevator shaft Ooh. after being informed by authorities that her husband was dead. Ooh. She was wearing a blue dress at the time. Mm-hmm. Since then, there have been multiple reports of people, including the Sealbach bartenders, seeing and hearing the lady in blue. Well, if the bartenders say it's true, it must be true. Yeah, they have no ulterior motives. No. Uh, guests have even reported feeling cold spots and the lingering scent of her perfume when staying at the Sealbach. Spooky, scary. You know what else is spooky? Defunding the arts. Okay, you're willing to start working on your segues. Yeah, probably. Anyway, Louisville is and has always been a big player in the theater arts ever since it first built its theater in 1808, soon after it built its first church. Well, you know, priorities. It wasn't much in terms of size, but it drew these huge crowds and actually became a major player in the surge of drama in the West. Theater started popping up all over that area. Did anything happen when movies replaced theater as a thing? Surprisingly, theater in Louisville continued to boom despite the growing popularity of motion pictures. Um, one of the world's most popular theaters, The Brown. Oh, <laughs> do you know why? Is it the Barnstable Browns? This is a pop quiz for you. Yes. Okay. Same Brown. It's Brown Foreman who are like the wealthiest family in, I don't know, the world and own like every like, I think every whiskey distillery, bourbon distillery, it's like winery. Half. It's like half. They, as far as like I'm concerned, which obviously I didn't do the research for this one because <laughs> I thought I knew everything about Louisville. <laughs> Just off the cuff. So Jeremy did all the research. But anyway, they own like everything, which needs to be fact checked because I'm pretty sure it's not true. But their name is on everything. Everything is brown or brown foreman. Okay. Continue to the parts that It's like we a Halsey song, up. but everything is brown. Oh, honey. No. If anybody gets that reference, that's a deep cut. Mm. Anyway, so the Brown Theater actually opened while movies were like super popular. And it's actually booming. Um, and in fact, Louisville has three of the top 200 theaters in the world. Yeah. Take that, everybody else. Take that, Broadway. <laughs> no, we actually do have like a really amazing theater scene. Um, yeah. Surprisingly. The three big ones are the Kentucky Center of the Arts, uh, the Brown Theater, and the Louisville Palace. Which is phenomenal beautiful they don't do theater there anymore they do like shows um and i love the kentucky center yeah me too we saw wicked there we did what why are you looking at me like that no reason i guess you could say that that theater is just really popular what popular i don't get it why don't you get my musical references you have seen the fucking show i mean somebody was green i wanted to talk more about theater though before we move on okay so Everybody in Louisville is really into theater, which I know is kind of surprising because you wouldn't, you just wouldn't expect that. We also have the Humana Festival of New Plays, right. which is a world famous festival for playwrights who have never been published before to put their plays up in front of a big audience with like actors from all over. And it's where a lot of plays that end up becoming Tony Award winning or whatever the other awards are for theater award winning. And also some of them get made into movies like Proof. Proof, yeah. Proof was debu- debuted. I actually saw it at the Humana Festival of New Plays when it was debuted and it went on to become a major motion picture. So... And a Tony winner. Yes. That's the one that I knew the name of. Yeah. So not only do we have, like, a really good way for new playwrights to get, like, published for the first time, but you can be a professional actor in Louisville, like... As a job, like there are paying acting gigs there and it's so cheap to live there that you can actually like, that can be your job. Like you can't do that shit in LA or New York. You just, you could never, but in Louisville you can. Everybody's an actor part-time or like full-time or whatever. And it's like there's seasonal opportunities too. It's like during Halloween, we have one of the best Halloweens in the country, in my opinion. And we have so many ridiculously good Halloween haunted houses because it's everybody true. is like a professional actor and they go like all out. It's so good. Can I tell the story? Yes. No. You- no. Okay. Ugh, fine. Yes. All right. So we went to a haunted house and- uh, You're already laughing at the memory. <laughs> this is so terrible. Leah hates scary stuff because the world's scary enough. Yes. Um, 
so we went to this haunted house and it's all these actors and we were with our we were with Leah's best friend who is an actor so he like knew everybody that was working there and we went to this room where there was this guy with a chainsaw and it was a real chainsaw but yeah. it didn't have the blade on it because safety whatever and he was like waving the chainsaw in Leah's face and she was like screaming I didn't like, know you screaming. could remove <laughs> blades from chainsaws and still turn them on she was like screaming against the wall for like 10 minutes for until, 10 minutes until he eventually he was relent. like until eventually he was like alright this is enough you guys didn't help either you just were standing in a <laughs> corner just, just like laughing at me every time I go into a haunted house I'm the friend that it's really funny to like make like everybody go like attack that was the first and last haunted house i've ever done with leah it was horrible i'll never do it again it's too real in louisville it's too realistic the actors are too good i cannot (laughs) handle it that's louisville's problem the actors are too good it's true it's a really we have an amazing theater program just not that a lot of white history and a lot of like talking about Louisville from the lens of white experience. But I do want to jump into the history of marginalized groups, specifically black Louisvillians. Following the Civil War and the Emancipation, thousands of formerly enslaved people settled in Louisville because it was between the South, which they knew, and the North where former enslaved people escaped. The western area of Louisville, which is known colloquially as the West End, is below the waterline of the Ohio River. So it's prone to flooding and there are like sanitation issues. And basically the land there has always been considered cheaper because of those issues. So due to that, recently freed black families were able to buy their own homes in the West End. Some families were able to afford land a little further east in the area now known as Smoketown. Currently, Smoketown is one of the neighborhoods in Louisville that's experiencing gentrifications, which means that families who have been there for generations are actually being pushed into the West End. So in the years following the war, many black and white families lived in close proximity, often on the same street. But white families would live in ornate mansions and black families would live in smaller houses in back alleys and on side streets. Black people continued to flock to Louisville from the South into the early 20th century. In response, Louisville passed a residential segregation ordinance to, quote, prevent conflict and ill feeling between the white and colored races in the city of Louisville and to preserve the public peace. Yeah, it sounds fancy, but it was a major racist fuck you. This redlining of Louisville stretched black families into poorer neighborhoods where they couldn't access jobs or schools or stores or any other city services. It's basically like legalizing segregation with this like spin on it. Like it's really progressive, but it was actually really, really shitty. Although the Supreme Court declared Louisville segregation ordinances unconstitutional, private restrictive covenants quickly replaced the ordinance, such as the power of white homeowners associations to keep their neighborhoods white. There's a really helpful resource um, called Redlining Louisville, which I really suggest like just doing a deep dive into because a lot of the issues that came out of redlining are what led eventually to what we've all been reading about in the news this year, um, including Breonna Taylor. So essentially, what mortgage companies did was they only gave to white families and that denied black families from purchasing stable housing, restricting their access to loans and wealth accumulation since the 1930s. So like on paper, we weren't segregated, but really actually we we were and still are. Through people's biases. Mm-hmm. Well, through ge- like through literally geography. Right. There is a divide in the middle of Louisville um, at 9th Street and it's the East End and the West End. The West End is pretty much all black. The East End is pretty much all white. Yeah. Now, you might think Louisville wised up, right? I mean, we live in a post-racial society. MLK solved racism. Yeah, no. Desegregation efforts in the 70s were met with fury from many white Louisville residents. In response to busing, which was um, an approach that schools took to basically desegregate by bringing black children from certain neighborhoods and busing them into white schools in other neighborhoods to like help like integrate right so white students ended up just attacking buses of black students with bricks starting fires and organizing rallies the mayor at the time declared that urban renewal plans were to drive black people from downtown to prevent it from becoming as he puts it a black belt it's a weird terminology uh louisville has since embraced integration On paper, I would say. I think pretty much most of the people that you'll meet in Louisville that are talking about redlining and this kind of thing would definitely identify as progressive and as anti-racism and anti-redlining and that kind of thing. But it's been embedded in Louisville for so long. I mean, literally, 
it's in the streets. There are certain streets like leading into Smoketown and out that are all one way because it makes it so that you can't get in or out easily. It's like the entire town is designed to be racist. And so even though now sentiment has changed, there is so much work to be done to undo all of that. Yeah. I mean, the effects of previous segregation ordinances and redlining linger today. Like you said, like the West End still lacks a proper grocery store. It's a food desert. Buses from that half of town have to take these roundabout routes, which means that West Enders have to sit on transit longer. And they're the ones that actually use the public transportation. Right. And that deters them from looking for jobs in like the more upscale East End because they're like, I don't want to be on a bus for two hours. It's really our public transportation is lacking. Yeah. Basic city services are passed down the line as like, oh, the West End of the West and we'll get to it, we'll get to it. And the area is just over-policed and underserved. And there's just like a whole stigma around the neighborhood. Right. Even those like, ha- like quote unquote, like woke people I talked about who would self-identify as being anti-racism, they're still like sketched out by the West End. They'll say that it's dangerous. Even parts of town like Old Louisville, which is a beautiful area, one of my favorite neighborhoods in Louisville, it has some like halfway houses. And because when you're walking around in Old Louisville, you'll see like non-white people a lot of people who wouldn't identify as racist will say like, oh, I've heard that area is really dangerous. They're not thinking critically about it. It's just because they see the police and people think that like the more cops there are, the more crime there has to be. There's a language about certain parts of Louisville that is deeply and like historically racist. And I think we're only just now getting to a moment in time where that racism is being illuminated and brought up to the light for us all to look at and think about and how it is actually systemic and what we all have, what we're all going to have to do to basically remove all those barriers. So our current mayor, his name is Greg Fisher, and he actually commissioned this report on redlining. He's actually like, since he started, since he was elected, he's been trying to kind of uncover this dark past and this dark truth about Louisville that it's historically and currently geographically segregated and that all of these past and present Louisvillians have been denied and withheld opportunities based on where they live. Um, and so he was working on this big development project in the West End. He was going to invest in building community resources. He was working on it with community leaders to make sure that it, it wasn't gentrification. It was really supposed to be and designed to be um, the things that the West End needed, like right. theoretically, right? This, this is how he's been presenting it and selling it. I don't know if that's the case or not. I'm not going to take a stand on that. It's being investigated. Um, so we'll find out. But one of the underpinning um, pieces in the lawsuit of about the murder of Breonna Taylor has to do with that specific community project. We are going to get into the grizzly details, not because we aren't a crime podcast. It's also not because the details are upsetting. We are making this choice because black bodies, specifically the bodies of black women, should not be used to intrigue our predominantly white audience. That information is already out there. If you want to look it up, you can. But Breonna Taylor deserves better than to just be a grizzly story, especially when her murderers got off with less than a wag of a finger. And hopefully they will be brought to justice. So we're not going to go into the details of Breonna Taylor. Hopefully you have heard her name. Hopefully you have some familiarity with um, her murder. If not, go Google it. What I do want to say is that story and the pieces in her lawsuit about her murder have a lot to do with the history of Louisville, have a lot to do with redlining and gentrification in Louisville. And we don't know yet, right, if that lawsuit is going to turn out to be um, proven to be you know, accurate in its accusations or not. But essentially they were saying that Breonna Taylor happened to live in a block that was designed to be uh, like bulldozed and built on top of. And the lawsuit claims that she was murdered in an attempt to basically gentrify the neighborhood. Um, It was like clearing it out. On the other hand, you have a very vital need for investment in the West End and a desire from people in the West End as well as other folks in Louisville who have an interest in seeing Louisville become more progressive to develop it in a way that is really playing homage to what the community wants and working with the community. My fear personally is that maybe we do find out that this was actually something really shady, right? Maybe she did actually get murdered to gentrify it. I'm so scared that nobody is going to want to work to like develop the West End in a way that is actually um, beneficial to the community because... There's this big, like... Exactly. This big black mark. Because there's... Exactly. So I'm very... It's it's so complex. It really is. Um, there's also things that have to do with the police officers aren't, like, required to live in Louisville. So right. they're not necessarily serving and upholding 
things that the average Louisvillian, who is pretty freaking progressive, believes in. And all three murderers did not live in Louisville, right? None right. So that's something now it's like there's all these laws kind of going into place to make it so that um, Louisville police officers do have to live in Louisville, have to ha- be more connected with the communities that they're serving and protecting. And that's all really, really great. And the mayor doesn't really have the way that the laws are written. The mayor isn't the one who gets to say whether or not they're fired, whether or not they're held to justice. And the Attorney General has not really been doing that much to right. help. So it's such a complicated and it is a developing situation. But when you hear Bianca Taylor, I want you to know that what happens to her in many ways does reflect this really ugly, dark, racist history of Louisville. But yeah. the Louisville that I know and the reason why I wanted to do a podcast episode talking about my hometown, Louisville is a progressive place. It is a place that always votes blue, even when the rest of Kentucky is voting red. It is a place that is LGBTQ friendly. It is a place that is a haven for the arts. It's a place that self-identifies as um, a sanctuary for immigrants and refugees, even though you kind of have to get permission. Like It's not like like an actual title because you have to get that from the state. And usually the Kentucky governor is not um, Democratic right now. He is. Anyway, that's a tangent. But it self-identifies as a sanctuary. And it is really a welcoming and loving place. But it has a very dark and ugly um, history of racism and segregation that for a long time needed to be corrected. And I'm I'm choosing to be optimistic that this is the moment that we will finally tackle that um, project together and move forward and become a place where it's not just an acknowledged truth that everything west of a certain street is where the black people live, right? Like, I don't want that for the future Louisville that, um, that I, like my hometown that I love so much. I want it to be a much more progressive place. So that's that's my hope. So what do you think it'll take for that to happen? I mean, for a start, y'all could vote out Mitch McConnell. <laughs> Although, listen, it's I mean, not Louisville's yeah. fault. Louisville always votes against Mitch McConnell. It's but just that also, we don't, the gerrymandering, we can't, we can't get that blue vote to count for very much. It's so frustrating. Well, it's not even that. It's like, I think that people want a boogeyman. You know, they want to be like, oh, McConnell's the problem. We have to get rid of him. They want to say like, Trump's the problem. Putin's the problem. Whatever's the problem. And they can hang all those problems on them. But like, look at everything we've talked about today. This is a this is deeper than a politician. This is a systemic pattern that has like pushed a full race of people down. Yes. The whole damn code needs to be rewritten. Like step one we had to recognize and realize that the system is broken. And I think we have. I think that we're at that moment, which this is why it gives me so much hope. I think we're all recognizing that and having that realization. And now we need to just throw out all that shit that didn't work and start over and rebuild it again from scratch. Right, because the idea of like, oh, the system is broken implies that like, so we can just fix it and bring it back to where it was. But like, we need to just be like, nah, this didn't work. Go back to the blueprints. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'd like to see that happen in the future for Louisville. So where else would you like to see Louisville go? You know what? I I do love Louisville. I do. And I have so much hope that one day it will become one of those cities that people think of and they're like, oh, I've always wanted to go there. Like we've always wanted to be one of those cities and we've never quite gotten there. We've wanted to be like a Nashville or even like a a Memphis, a Charlotte, a Savannah, like places that people want to visit. We don't have like, other than the Derby, we don't have a huge amount of tourism and tourism. And I'm going to get like on my little travel blogger soapbox for a minute. Tourism gives local communities money to do things that will reinvest in the community. And especially in a place like Louisville, where it's a blue island and a sea of red, having a way to make your own money and not be reliant on your state government, if that state government doesn't like align with the beliefs of your citizens is a huge benefit because it means you can protect your citizens. We have a problem in Louisville where like they'll want to, so this actually happened with ICE a few years ago. I'll make this brief. But like ICE was trying to knock down doors and drag people out of their homes and deport them or lock them up in camps, right? And Louisville was like, no, those are our citizens and we're going to protect them. And at the time we had a red governor and he said, oh, well, we'll just cut funding to all your schools. So your teachers aren't going to get paid. We're going to cut all this funding, right? You're not going to be able to make money. When Louisville is able to like, it's ha- it, they have like fuck you money, right? They can be like, nah, it's fine. We have conventions. We have the Derby. Like right. we have the like bourbon distilleries. Like people are coming here and spending their money and that means we can use that money to reinvest in our schools. So we're going to protect our citizens. They don't quite have enough of that. Like they kind of do, but they, they don't really. And so 
I think that Louisville can really become a place where that tourism money and also the money from the industries that we have in Louisville, a lot of which does come from the bourbon industry. But I really think tourism is a big place where we can have an impact. And that's part of why I spend so much time talking about Louisville, hyping it up, like doing a podcast episode, talking about it on the blog. Because if you go and you spend that money in Louisville and you spend it at black businesses and you spend it at locally owned places, that money is getting reinvested in the community. And Louisville is a beautiful, wonderful and progressive place with its problems that need to be fixed. But it is a place where it's worth it to go and invest that money in. And it is so important any red state that has a little dot of blue and a city of blue, that is so important. So it, a lot of the places that we talk about, like Savannah in Georgia, you know, places like that, um, it's, it's a similar kind of issue. So I'd like to see Louisville become a center of tourism and, a, and the kind of city that people want to go visit. I'd like to see us have like food tours and like walking tours and things like that. Um, I'd like us to have, I'd like us to be like one of those places that people are like, oh my God, I want to go do the bourbon tour for my like bachelorette party. And I know that's like a slippery slope because then you get like drunk bachelorette people <laughs> like running little, around like, distilleries. Those little bikes. Those little bikes. Things. But like in Louisville, we don't have that and we would be really excited if we had that. Like that would be huge. But I think that like what you're talking about is sort of a bigger thing that I've been seeing a lot on Instagram about like Oh, look at all these people. These are all like, there's that meme that's like all the states that voted for Kanye never see these states again. And it's a lot of like, like we get written off a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kentucky gets written off flyover a lot because state. it's like, we, we count as both like a flyover state and like a backwoods, like Southern state where you only hear about us because of McConnell or because somebody got shot, like horrible backwoods shit. Right. But and the, that's Kentucky. That's not Louisville. But the thing is, is that like going to these cities and putting the, putting the money in local places like that empowers them you're mm-hmm. not putting the money in mcconnell's pocket right you're not putting the money no mcconnell can't come to louisville because people boo him and picket him until he leaves right but luckily he has a shell so he can just <laughs> his little turtle <laughs> his shell. little turtle shell but like don't just write off cities like that because they need your support it's not going to the state mm-hmm. i mean unless you're like going to like a federal thing but like buying local supporting local um it's going to empower those people that actually need it. And the tourism boards in those cities are funded by the state government, right? right. So they, you only have power as a city if you are making money for the state government. That's my like tourism industry in a nutshell, like <laughs> like TED Talk. Um, where else would I like to see Louisville go? I'd really like us to have a public transit system. Yeah, y'all need a light rail. Because that have, shit is like, it's like yes. big. It's like a big swatch of land. Louisville is very large. And outside of, there's kind of like a ring of neighborhoods to get around in, which is basically where I recommend people visit. And I get people from Louisville commenting and being like, hey, there's really cool places in the South End, right? Like there's really cool places, other parts of Louisville. And it's true, but it takes like 15 minutes of driving to get there. And then you have to like actually rent a car. Yeah, you have to rent a car. Whereas if you stay in this little part of Louisville where you don't have to rent a car, I mean, it is still kind of hard to get around, right? There is the bus system, but it's it's really ineffective um, and it's not well invested in because most people don't use it. So first of all, Louisvillians listening to this, y'all need to start using TARC, like <laughs> get on the bus and use it because then people will actually invest in it and it'll have some money. But I really want to see Louisville have a light rail. Uh, we used to have a really good 24-hour train system back in like Louisville. Louisville's heyday in like the 20s. And it was like one of the best in the country. It ran all the time. We had these cute little trolleys, like the ones that you see in San Francisco. We still have trolleys, but it's not like a big system. But anyway, there's all these like really cool um, commuter rails running all around town 24 hours a day. And around the 60s, they literally, this is the, it was the plot of Who Shot Roger Rabbit. Is that the name of the movie? Um, why can't I think of the name of the movie? Oh it my was God. Who Shot Robert Rabbit, right? No, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Who Framed Robert Rabbit. Okay. Literally, this is what happened. They were like, we're going to get rid of the trains and build a bus system. And the bus system is going to be better. And everybody was like, but why would you use the bus system when the train system is so good? And they were like, because we're going to turn all of the trains into buses and everybody's going to have to use it because there's only going to be buses. And it was like this evil rubber corporation. And then somebody like got run over by a train and then they were flattened out and then they like stood up and had these like red eyes that like popped out of his like flat body. I really want to see Roger Rabbit again. I no desire. But that's literally what happened is they like bought out like the it was the rubber company that made the tires for the buses like bought out the train company and then just paved over all of the train tracks. So there are parts of Louisville where you'll see train tracks like sticking up out of the ground like leading to nowhere or like these abandoned bridges running through neighborhoods that you're like, huh, I wonder what that's for. It's because it used to be a really cool light rail system. That's where that's what happened. 
happened. So down with big rubber, bring back the train tracks. All you have to do is just kind of like dust them off out of the pavement and we'll have a whole system ready to go. There's a lot of historical stuff. I spent a lot of my time just like deep diving into like- Yeah, she really wanted to put that into the reconstruction area. The history of the like Louisville transit system and where we are with the light rail system. And it's not in Mayor Fisher's 20 year plan. He's like talking a lot about like bicycles and pedestrians and commuter systems and making the bus system better, but he hasn't talked about the light rail. I'm probably going to end up like moving to Louisville and like electing myself city council just so I can make this damn light rail happen. You heard it here first. <laughs> Vote for me 2063. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Year. You don't know. Louisville city council has its own years. <laughs> All right. Um, well, hopefully you learned something on our first historical episode, and appropriately, it is Leah's hometown. We're going to have more of these every few episodes. We're also, with season two, we're doing stories that we've had, as well as like behind-the-scenes stuff. So if you have a question for Practical Wanderlust to answer on a behind-the-scenes episode, please DM us at Practical Wanderlust. You can also email contact at practicalwanderlust.com. We're just like throwing them into a document, and we're going to do an FAQ episode at some point. You can also read our book, How to Quit Your Job and Travel which has lots of questions that are answered. Like, how did you quit your job and travel? <laughs> for one. For, and For the first one. And second. What was it like? And third, what is travel? <laughs> and fourth, but where to travel? <laughs> All right, we did a whole thing on that. We're not going to harp on too much about it, but you should buy the book. You should buy it because I wrote it. It's real yeah, long. Yeah, Lee's been working very hard on the book. She's My fingers got, are so, she's got bloody fingers. so sore. I wasn't going to say bloody. Bloody is gross. <laughs> I was just going to say they hurt real bad. Remember that Halloween, like... The chainsaw? Yeah, I remember no, you, the you Halloween, brought me back to that. The Halloween story that we heard, it was like the book on tape about <laughs> the writer. Are you just telling like a personal anecdote on our podcast? That's what this entire podcast is, is personal <sighs> anecdotes. All right. <laughs> We're just going to leave that one. It doesn't. It's not entertaining enough to explain to you. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, everybody. See you uh, next time. See you. Bye. Bye.